Our first reading this morning is taken from Mark chapter 5 and reading from verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of a synagogue named Jairus came and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So he went with him, and a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for twelve years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. And she was no better but rather worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, if I but touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you, how can you say who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Our second reading continues that passage in Mark chapter 5, starting from verse 35. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, John, uh, Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. As I was writing this sermon, the headlines were full of the reports of the Harvey Weinstein trial, as the famous Hollywood producer faced allegations that he used his power to groom young actresses, some of whom he went on to sexually assault and rape. When the news started to break on this story a couple of years ago, it lit a fire underneath the hashtag MeToo movement as women from all walks of life started to tell their stories of how men had used their power inappropriately to touch and assault them. 
Also, I'm sure that none of us have forgotten the claim made by the current President of the United States that if a man has enough power, he can do what he wants with a woman, groping and sexually assaulting without consent. Jess Phillips, one of the uh, now outruled candidates for the leadership of the Labour Party, uh, was threatened with rape on Twitter last year by the UKIP MEP candidate Carl Benjamin, who, when called to task on his threat, claims that he was merely joking. As the stories of Me Too have emerged, it is clear that such behaviour is rife on both sides of the Atlantic, from the public sphere to the private. And that there is something deeply wrong with our society's construction of what it means to be male and female, which has normalized assault. Nick Cohen, writing in The Guardian, suggests that such behavior is driven by a combination of what he describes as male anxiety and male stupidity. And he concludes, liberal defenses of free speech always exclude incitements to violence. If the law states that Carl Benjamin and men like him cannot be prosecuted and that Twitter and YouTube can allow hundreds of men to discuss raping a politician with impunity, then we have to change the law. And he has a point, I think. If the law cannot punish such behavior, it is failing. But my concern is that simply changing the law won't solve the problem. What is needed is a new construction, or possibly deconstruction, of masculinity, which offers men a better way of being themselves. I've recently been reading Grayson Perry's book, The Descent of Man, which critiques what he calls the Department of Masculinity. This is uh, this thing that he says exists in society. It's a metaphor, you understand. And he says the Department of Masculinity tells men from the moment they're born how to be men. He observes, on average, two women a week in England and Wales are killed by a violent partner or ex-partner. And this constitutes nearly 40% of all female homicide victims. And Grayson Perry, who, as many of you will know, is um, a heterosexual man who cross-dresses, he goes on to add, violence is not something young men just learn in gangs or even in school. At a deep level, they learn it at home. Governments agonize over housing estates scarred by crime, football hooliganism, city centers blighted by alcohol-fueled violence. They put in schemes to lessen binge drinking or fund safe houses for ex-gang members. While all the time, little boys learn that violence is a way of solving problems. Every time they are slapped, intimidated, or humiliated as a child, Every time they see their father throwing his weight around, every time they succeed in getting what they want by force, they are learning to be violent. And what I noticed as I was reading through our passage for this morning from the narrative lectionary was quite how touch-heavy the narrative is. The woman is healed through touch, 
The crowd are pressing round Jesus and touching him. He takes the girl's hand to raise her from death. And as we shall discover, the first century Jewish world had very strong laws about who could touch whom and when. And in the course of today's passage, Jesus breaks most of those rules. So as we spend time with these stories of two women and their encounters with Jesus, my invitation is for us to hold in our minds the tensions that exist between touch and law and masculinity. Geoffrey John, the Anglican clergyman, observes that Jesus had what he calls a startlingly inclusive attitude to women throughout the Gospels, regularly acting in ways that equalised their power with men. And this countercultural behaviour was almost unheard of in the first century, where women were regarded as second or possibly even third-rate citizens. And the story of the hemorrhaging woman which sits as a kind of a, a filler in the sandwich of the story of the raising of Jairus' daughter, takes us right to the heart of the issue of the purity legislation that dominated Jewish society in this time. This is a very early illustration, probably from around about 200, of uh, Christ healing the woman with the issue of blood. We've seen in our sermons over the last few weeks, as we've been working our way through the early chapters of Mark's Gospel, that Jesus keeps opposing the purity rules which existed at his time that declared some people clean and other people unclean. So we've seen him casting out an unclean spirit from a man in the synagogue and a whole legion of them from a man living amongst the tombs. And we've seen him healing one man rendered unclean by his skin condition and another rendered unclean by his physical impairment. And in today's passage, Jesus stops healing men and starts healing women. And whilst I wouldn't want to make too much of this, I think there is something significant in the observation that if we are to address violence by men against women our starting point might need to be with men because it is them who need to change. Having challenged his society's shortcomings in terms of its construction of masculinity with its coded divisions of in and out, where powerful male scribes get to write the rules and enforce them, whilst those who couldn't or didn't fit were excluded or scapegoated, Jesus now turns to the women, who time after time, generation after generation, are required to bear the psychological and physical scars of dysfunctional masculinity. And so we meet the hemorrhaging woman. And we have to start speaking about things that might make some of us feel awkward. It is interesting for me to observe that as a man, I find it socially uncomfortable to talk in public about female menstruation. Somewhere lurking deep inside me is the child who attended an all-boys grammar school and was told by the other boys that girls were dirty, whilst also discovering that they were the object of my sexual desire. We are not so far from the world of the first century, and our taboos about power and gender and the functioning of the human body are every bit as dysfunctional 
as those that were operative in the crowd around Jesus. And you will have your own stories of things you've been told that you still carry too. In the first century Jewish context, menstruation was seen as God's curse on Eve based on a particular reading of Genesis 3.16. This meant that in the culture of the time of Jesus, a woman on her period was deemed unclean by the Levitical law code, not only for the time of the period itself, but also for an additional seven days afterwards. This meant that for two weeks out of each month, women were excluded from public worship and had to live with restricted engagement in normal social life because of the rules around proxy contamination, whereby if they touched something, such as a pot or a chair, then that thing was unclean and would make anyone else who touched it unclean also. In this context, it is surely highly significant that the women the, sorry, the, the woman in, in the story, rendered unclean by the uncontrolled flow of menstrual blood, it is highly significant that she should find her path to healing through touch, something which had been denied her for 12 years. Because she just simply wouldn't have been able to touch anyone. That was the rules. So what are we to make of this strange idea that the woman touched Jesus... And he then felt the power go out of him and into her in a way that brought about her healing. I mean, it all sounds a bit sci-fi. If you've seen the latest Star Wars film, The Rise of Skywalker, I promise no spoilers, there are a couple of examples in there where someone who is strong in the force transfers some of their life energy to someone who's dying, healing their wounds and bringing them back from the point of death. A bit of a spoiler. I think it was a bit of a get-out clause, frankly, in terms of the plot, but anyway. Um, in this, classic, you've seen it too, in this classic sci-fi trope, for which I could have given many other examples, the person laying their hands on the sick or injured character always feels a sense of pain or dangerous weakness as they give up their power to save another. So is this what's going on here in our story from Mark's Gospel? Well, partly, yes, it is. There is nothing new under the sun, and the idea of a powerful healer who gives some of their energy to make someone else better is, is as old as humanity. But in the case of Jesus and the hemorrhaging woman, there is another layer of meaning that Mark offers for us to unpack. Everything this woman has touched for the last 12 years has been rendered unclean, from people to pots and pans, and this has been the source of her isolation and distress. And yet, when she reaches out to touch Jesus, the flow of uncleanness is stemmed, both in her body and in the interactions with another. See, for the first time in 12 years, the flow goes the other way. Rather than her touch making others unclean, the touch of another has made her clean. The taboo that has condemned this woman to life as an outcast is broken as she touches Jesus and discovers not legalistic exclusion, but welcome and relationship. And lest we think we are so far removed from this strange world of menstrual, menstrual taboo and touch contamination, some of us are old enough to remember the great taboo that surrounded the early years of the AIDS epidemic. 
Myths abounded that you could be contaminated by touch, and others called AIDS God's curse on gay men. In 1987, Princess Diana famously opened the first purpose-built HIV-AIDS unit in the UK that exclusively cared for patients infected with the virus. It was opened at the London Middlesex Hospital. And in front of the world's media, Princess Diana shook the hand of a man suffering with the illness and did so without gloves, publicly challenging the notion that HIV-AIDS contaminated by touch. It is not an understatement to say that this single high-profile act of touching changed the public perception of those suffering with HIV-AIDS. Taboos about touch are also at the heart of the story of the healing of Jairus' daughter. And here you have a 4th century sarcophagus with a, a carving of the raising of Jairus' daughter. Because what else would you put on a sarcophagus? It's not without significance that the young girl slash woman here is said to be 12 years old. Not only does the length of her life match the period of suffering of the hemorrhaging woman, further tying the two stories together, but it also meant that as far as, as, far as the Jewish society of that time was concerned, if she was 12, she was a woman. She was of marriageable age. A rabbi like Jesus could play innocently with a child, and we have stories elsewhere of Jesus opening his arms to welcome the little children. But Jairus' daughter was already a woman, so for Jesus to take her hand was a huge breach of the rules that governed social interaction between men and women. And of course, her being a woman was nowhere near as problematic from a purity law point of view as the fact that she was now dead. It might have been inappropriate for a rabbi to touch a woman, but it was absolutely forbidden for him to touch a dead body. This was far worse than his physical contact with the hemorrhaging woman. And it takes us into one of the deep underlying themes of the Gospel of Mark, which is that Jesus consistently acts in ways that explode taboos. From breaking prohibitions on touch, to casting out spirits of uncleanness, to disregarding Sabbath laws, to defeating the great final taboo of death itself, there is, it seems, nowhere that Jesus won't go in his mission to bring good news to people enslaved and diminished by narratives of exclusion and uncleanness that dominated every aspect of his society. The ultimate demonstration of Jesus' challenge to the great taboo of death comes, of course, at the end of the Gospel in the story of the cross and the empty tomb. But here, much earlier in the story, we're shown that Jesus is willing to break all the rules if the end result is the gift of life. And of course, Jairus' daughter, like Lazarus in John's Gospel, is raised to life rather than resurrected to eternal life. One day, they will both die again, and their experiences of life eternal will be of the same quality as that experienced by any of us. The point here is not so much that the girl is raised from the dead, as it is that Jesus brings life and healing and wholeness by willfully going and doing what no other rabbi would or could. I spoke about the theology of healing recently, and I won't repeat myself today. You can find that sermon on our shiny new website if you're interested. However, it's worth thinking for a minute here about the role of faith in these two healings. As Jesus sends the woman away in peace, 
He tells her that it is her faith that has made her well. And Jesus says to Jairus, when the news comes that his daughter has died, that he should not fear but only have faith. It's the same word. And so we are back again in the world of magical healing, where some mechanistic relationship between a person of power and a person of faith unlocks physical healing. Or is there something else going on? As I said earlier, partly the answer is yes, we are in that world of magical healing, or at least it was the world that Mark was writing his gospel in. The ancient world was full of stories of miraculous power, and we certainly get echoes of these in the way the stories of Jesus are told by the gospel writers. For example, it's only a chapter later, in uh, chapter 6, verse 56, that we hear of people in the crowd around Jesus being healed by touching the hem of his cloak. And if we fast forward through to the book of Acts, we get stories of people being healed as Peter's shadow fell on them, or by touching Paul's handkerchiefs or aprons. So we are right to be suspicious of such stories as they circulated around Jesus and filtered the way the gospel writers recorded his ministry. But does this mean we can dismiss these stories entirely? I I don't think it does. After all, Mark tells these stories this way for a reason, and his intent is far more significant than simply wanting to assert that Jesus can do magic as well as any other faith healer. Geoffrey John points to the fact that in classical Greek, the word, this is another, another ancient picture of the healing of the woman for you. Um, Geoffrey John points to the fact that in classical Greek, the word for heal, healing, is the same as the word for save or, or saving. So when Jesus says to the hemorrhaging woman that her faith has healed her, he is also saying that her faith has saved her. For her, salvation and healing are the same thing. And the key to both is faith. So what's going on here? Well, it's surely significant that Jesus calls her daughter rather than woman. She is no longer a stranger to him. She is daughter. She is part of his new family of faith. And here we are, back at the taboos that Jesus is overturning. This isn't a story to show that healing is triggered by faith if you have enough of it. Rather, this story is told to demonstrate that the faith which Jesus draws from people is a faith that breaks down barriers of exclusion to include the unclean and declare them clean, thereby bringing the healing of salvation to those who have previously been denied it. The hemorrhaging woman is the one person in the whole crowd around Jesus who in faith is able to access his true power. It is only the victim of 12 years exclusion who can see Jesus with the eyes of faith. It is the ritual and economic outcast from society who has the faith to step into the new way of being human that Jesus is embodying and inaugurating, where there are no constraints on compassion as the excluded are welcomed as members of Jesus' family. For her, stepping out of the crowd was the act of faith, defying the conspiracy of conventions that would have kept her perpetually silenced as a victim. This, for her, was the step of faith. 
And it is the same step of faith that is matched by women in any age, including our own, who have taken a step forward to hold the world to account for its victimization of them and their kind. And what she encounters in Jesus is a different kind of masculinity to the toxic hatred of the purity religionists. Any other rabbi that she would have reached out and touched would have condemned her. And the isolation would have been perpetuated. Those who would perpetuate abusive systems and then blame the victims for their existing are challenged when Jesus meets this woman's faith and courage with a healing of both body and soul. What she discovered was that the step out of the conspiracy of silence was the step of healing. As one commentator puts it, inside the conspiracy of masculine violence, the woman is constantly covered in blood when she leaves the conspiracy of masculine violence, then the bleeding stops. And you can write that across all female experiences of male violence throughout history. And here's the thing. The new humanity that is coming into being in Christ is the place where the bleeding stops. Faith in Jesus is a step away from a world dominated by violence, scapegoating, bloodshed, oppression, discrimination, separation and toxic masculinity into a new world that is dawning where the death-defeating, resurrecting, inclusive, peaceful love of God for all people brings healing and salvation. And this is a message of good news for women. And it is a message of good news for men. I spoke about my experiences at school and the views on women that little boys at the school I went to were, were just kind of drip-fed. And somewhere it has to stop and it has to be different and we need a new masculinity, and we need a new femininity. And dare I say, this is what we meet when we touch Jesus. It is a matter of great shame that Christian congregations have themselves become bastions of exclusion and segregation. From the denial of ordination to women, and there are many Baptist churches that will not ordain a woman, and have a woman as their pastor. From the denial of ordination to those who are LGBTQI, and for all of our inclusiveness, and isn't it great that here at Bloomsbury we conduct same-sex weddings? Yes, it is. Can you be ordained as a Baptist minister if you're in a same-sex marriage? No, you can't. To the scriptural justification of gender stereotypes that distort men and oppress women, you know the thing, spare the rod and hurt the child and women obey your husbands and turn the other cheek and oh my goodness. 
to the collusion with society in the scapegoating of others on the grounds of socioeconomic standing and ethnicity and other innate characteristics. And the church has been guilty of all of that. Well, echoing the message of the Me Too movement, this has to stop. Congregations like Bloomsbury are, or at least should be, on the front line of bringing a new world into being for all of us. Through our courageous enacting of the faith that highlights the oppression and brings salvation and healing to each of us. And I need this, because I am damaged. And you need this, because you are damaged. We each of us carry within ourselves the legacy of and the capacity for oppression. And each of us needs to take the step of faith to reach out and touch Jesus. To challenge the taboos that are keeping us from wholeness. And to receive the healing, loving, renewing, refreshing power that flows from our saviour to our souls. Well, our new vision statement that we approved last month sets out our purpose as a congregation as that of provoking faith in the heart of London. Will we find faith where others miss it? Will we draw faith from those who have been told it is not available to them? Will we find faith in the darkness of our own hearts? If we are to fulfill this vision, we need to take the step into faith. As the woman did as she stepped out of the crowd to Jesus. And I pray in faith that as we take the step of faith, we will find that it brings healing to us and to others. Maybe this is what it means to reach out and touch Jesus. Great God of all love, all compassion, all hope and all joy, we come before you today mindful of the needs of others and longing that your gospel of justice and peace would be good news for all people in all places. And yet we know that there is so much still to do. We know that darkness lurks. We know that human hearts remain turned from you and that there are many who suffer because people of faith remain inactive or silent. We are particularly grieved when we think that there are those who long to know your redeeming and transforming presence in their lives but who are kept from you by the very people who bear your name. And as we consider the ways in which we welcome people into this community of your people here in London, we ask your forgiveness for those times when our actions or inactions have caused people to be turned away from finding you in and through us. Give us a desire to live differently, to welcome all in your name, and to live into reality the hope that transcends despair. Sometimes when we consider the needs of a hurting and damaged world, 
it can feel as though we are weighed down with the responsibilities we have taken upon ourselves. The task before us feels too great and the efforts we make too insignificant. So Lord, we ask that you will restore unto us the joy of our salvation. May we rediscover in you the lightness of living that drew us to you in the first place and which continues to draw others into your love, forgiveness and renewal. May your people in this place be beacons of light and hope, discovering joy in the midst of despair, comfort in the face of grief and faith that transcends all discouragements. It is in this spirit of hope that we come now to pray for the needs of our world, confident that you are at work in the world in and through your people, bringing new life and resurrection hope. And so we pray for those who live in countries that are affected most by the impacts of climate change and by those who live daily with the effects of war. We think of those who have lost their homes to floods, those who have been displaced by armies and ideologies, and those who do not have enough to eat. We pray for the aid agencies and the peacekeeping forces as they seek to bring help and alleviate suffering. We thank you especially for Christian aid and the work that they do on our behalf. May our love for you drive us to a concern for others that takes action in prayerful generosity. As we think of the political situation in our own country, we recognise the need for finding a way forwards that safeguards the most vulnerable in our society. We pray for our political leaders and we ask that they will not lose sight of the impact their decisions will have on those who live with low income, for whom any economic downturn or reduction in benefits can be catastrophic. As we turn our faces forwards to working out what it is for this country to exist outside the European Union, we ask for perseverance and courage and grace. We thank you for the work done by Christian churches in this country to speak truth to power and for the way our national leaders hold before our decision makers the needs of those who may not have a voice to speak for themselves. So we thank you for the Baptist Union, for the work of the Faith and Society team and for the Joint Public Issues team as they advocate on our behalf on issues of justice. We pray particularly for our General Secretary, Lynn Green, and ask that you will give her stamina and joy and peace. And finally, Lord, we pray for ourselves. Help us as individuals and as a church to know what it is to live into being the joyful good news of your inbreaking kingdom. May we learn to love one another more, and may we learn to love you more, 
and from our sharing in love. May we be motivated to take action together as faith becomes deeds, to see your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. All this we pray in the name of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.